Come on. Hey, good morning. Like Andy said, kids, you're dismissed to Children's Church. The rest of you grab a Bible. We're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. It is near the, uh, the end of your Old Testament. As we have transitioned in the series from looking at Daniel to looking at Habakkuk this morning. Did it seem like the natives were more restless than normal this morning? It was, uh, the children were, were uh, making themselves heard, that's for sure. Um, we love having them in here. There's a lot of them. Well, uh, Habakkuk, we are uh, looking at both of these books together uh, for two reasons. One, have you ever seen the back half of Daniel? Um, I didn't want to preach through it, and uh, it's best, definitely one of those sections of the Bible that's easier to teach through, through pre- but preach through, but there are actually similar times in the life and the history of Israel. Uh, the book of Habakkuk, we actually know very, very little about the prophet Habakkuk, uh, who is the one speaking for the most part here in this book. In fact, we actually don't even know how to pronounce his name. You know, his na- uh, Andy didn't even know how to pronounce his name. And I, I said Habakkuk, but I'm completely making it up. Um, they, there's, there's actually a lot of questions about even how to pronounce his name. But the book was written about 2,600 years ago, around the year 600 B.C., uh, right before the Babylonians take over. Uh, the Babylonians are on the rise, and they're about to take over uh, Judah uh, and Israel. And that is what we've been talking about in the book of Daniel. But Daniel has lived in exile after the Babylonians have invaded Judah. This is happening right before that happens. And in fact, part of what we're even gonna read here is God prophesying to Habakkuk that that is what is going to happen. And so that is the context of where we are. And what we have here is a vision that Habakkuk sees. And the vision is of a dialogue between him and God. It is a conversation uh, between him and the Lord. And so we're gonna pick up in Habakkuk chapter one. We're going to read all of Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Will you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? The oracle makes it sound like it's the matrix. An oracle is kind of a word from God. (laughs) It's just a vision, something he saw. So the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw... And here's what he saw. He said, uh, at this conversation, O Lord, he spoke, how shall I cry? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed and justice never seems to go forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations, God says. This is God's response to him. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep up, sweep by the, like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. 
And this, this is Habakkuk's response to that. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. And therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. There's a lot of confusing things there we'll get to. But I want to begin this morning with this, kind of, with this question. Have you ever been disappointed with God? We like to use the word doubt. Oh, I, I, yes, I've had doubts with God because that sounds far more apologetic. Right? We, yeah, that's, yes, the intellectual have doubts. Or even angry with God because that is the more visceral word felt by the, by the young and by the passionate. But I think the word that best describes what far more people experience in the day-to-day life is what could be described with the word disappointment with God. They're just simply disappointed. I think of some folks who, who in our church, now I'm, in each of these I'm going to give illustrations of people I know who are going through particular things, who did all the right things with their kids. They worked hard to love and care for their children. They taught them well, kept them in church, faithfully sacrificed, did family devotions, only to have their kids not walk with God, and for that matter, not even be able to function very well in society. And they're disappointed with God. I think of a couple in a marriage that don't have a bad marriage. There's not infidelity. There's not vast difficulty. It's just not a very intimate one. They are disappointed that their spouse has not become the person that they thought that they would bond with. And there is an ache of unmet longing and a sense of loneliness in a marriage that is not loveless, but just isn't fulfilling either. And for them, there is disappointment with God because of that. I think of the single person who has found that they have lost touch with certain friends who over the years have gotten married, and now they feel as if They're not a part of those friends' lives anymore. Or perhaps they feel left out in the broader family life because all of their siblings have gotten married and now have children. And so they're kind of the lesser of the siblings. There's the man or woman who is disappointed to find that their skills and just the luck of the draw has left them in a job now in their late 30s or 40s or 50s in which they feel very little significance and they're looking at life and they're going, I gotta do another 20 years of this? They're disappointed with God. I think of the couple who's done did the hard slogging. They raised the kids and they labored it through their careers. They got up early and they labored late into the evening. And now they're at the point of their life where their children have moved out. They're moved into wonderful, fruitful vistas of life and labor. Only now, just as they're breaking into open grounds, undercut by debilitating disease. I think of the person who is just disappointed 
with who God has made them to be. They're not the man that they wish they could be. And they're disappointed with God. That his sanctification process seems to be a bust. And is far, far slower than they would have liked. And each of these people may have moments, yes, of red-hot anger where they do shake their fists at God, but really where they are at a normal day is at a place in their inner being like an ever, there's just a, a gut bloat of irritation and disappointment at God. And who teaches us to be disappointed with God? When you're in that place in your life where you're like, it's not awful, but it's not good either. Where you might even feel disillusioned with with God's place in your life and where he's led you. Where do you find a mentor to walk through such a season? Well, we find it in the book of Habakkuk. A prophet who wrote 2,600 years ago, but he's very similar to you. Habakkuk mentors us when God makes no sense. He does two things. We're going to see over the next couple weeks. Actually, three things in the the fullness of the book. He's going to pray. He's going to wait on God. And he's going to worship. And that's certainly true. He's going to do those things. We're going to look at the, the second one this morning, the word prayer. He prays. But, I, but we're, the prayer is not the word I want to focus on this morning because I think it's far too cute. For us as Christians, we, we have certain things that come to mind when we, we say the word prayer. And what Habakkuk does in this, in this passage is pray in that he's, yes, generally talking to God. But I, I, think, I think we think, have a certain way in which we think about how prayer ought to go, and this is not how our prayers usually go. He is, what I might say in a more generic term, he's simply giving voice. He's letting God know, I don't like this. And so in voicing his complaints, he is voicing with cries and with worship and with questions. And so Habakkuk gives voice to his disappointment. And in so doing so, he actually gives voice, I think, to the disappointments that so many of you have. That he speaks to God and gives voice to our bewilderment and our frustration and our perplexity at God's will for our life. And so perhaps in watching Habakkuk, You'll learn this morning and in the coming weeks, you'll learn or relearn how to find your voice, your own voice, in which maybe you can speak your own disappointments to God. I'm going to give us three headings this morning, three headings to walk us through this passage. The first is in verses one through four, Habakkuk's first cry to the Lord. He gives voice to his cries regarding the silence of God. Here's the situation of what's going on. He is complaining because Judah is going to hell in a handbasket morally. Here's the history of Judah real quickly in a nutshell. Everything was good for the most part under David. David has a son Solomon. This is the high point and the apex of Israelite society and culture as a nation. And then soon after Solomon dies, the nation of Israel is torn into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is known still as the, as the nation of Israel. And then the southern kingdom is known as then the kingdom of Judah. Kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom becomes much more corrupt much more quickly. They have already now at this point in history by 600 BC been overrun and taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. Essentially the kingdom of Israel no longer exists. And so now we're dealing with the, what has been at least comparatively, the more faithful part of God's people, the kingdom of Judah. They had actually, about 10 to 15 years earlier, during the uh, reign of Josiah, had gone through a revival. 
There is, the law had been brought back out. The people of God had repented. There had been great work done. The country and the kingdom had thrived under Josiah's rule. But then Josiah was killed by the Egyptians. And his children take over. And uh, they essentially washed away everything good their father had done. They were bad kings, and bad does not begin to describe how bad they were. Jeremiah actually says this about them. He said that their hearts and their eyes were only for dishonest gain. They would shed innocent blood, and they practiced oppression and violence, which means from the very top of Judah and the kingdom of Judah, from the very leading points of their political life, their kings are morally corrupt, and they're leading all the people into corruption. And that brings us to where we are today in verses one through four. And what Habakkuk says, he says in verse three, he's upset because all he sees is evil being done around him and nothing, nothing is happening about it. God's people are just morally decrepit and they're, they're allowing oppression and injustice to go un, unheeded in the people, amongst the people of God. And remember, this is not amongst the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. This is happening in what we would consider to be the church. That is what he's he's upset about. There's unrighteousness just running amok amongst God's people. And then in verse four, he cries out that the law courts are unjust. The law courts are run by corrupt and unjust men. And so there's just injustice from top to bottom. He's upset because the oppressors and the evil are winning and leading God's people astray. But that's not the deepest part of his, his complaint, is it? The deepest part of his complaint is that he has been crying out to God for these exact things to change and God has seemingly done nothing. He appears to not have heard, that he doesn't appear to care, that he appears to be silent and absence. And so in verse two, what does he say? How long? How long? How long shall I cry out and you will not hear? He said, I have been calling 911 and ain't nobody picking up on the other line. God has gone AWOL and he's gone AWOL in the face of evil amongst his people. And one of the most painful things in life is to be somebody who's looking at grief or injustice or loss in your life and you're crying out to God and all you seem to experience on the other end of the line is static. And that God is silent. And understand this, God's saints have a long track record of growing how long. The psalmist does it in Psalm 13. He asks, how long will God feel distant from me? In Psalm 44, the psalmist asks, (laughs) quite frankly, God, are you asleep? The saints, even in Revelation, at the very end of the Bible. It's a crazy scene. You know the scene about how martyrs, uh, they they ask, when will our bloods be avenged? In other words, this is people who have already died and gone to be their souls with God in heaven. And they're crying out and they're going, we were killed and you have not avenged us. How long, Lord? And the prophet here is most upset because he lives in a society that is so corrupt that those who are supposed to promote and adjudicate the law are corrupt as well. And when you live under such injustice, and when the poor and the righteous are put upon and taken advantage of and trampled upon, it makes God's people cry out, how long, O Lord? We question God, don't we, when we see such injustice in this life, in this world? When the innocent and the impoverished are slain, when children are ripped from their mother's wombs, and when the poor of our country are most taken advantage of, when we look at the world and we see the big and dominant countries 
violating the weak. I love this comic from Calvin and Hobbes. He has an on, Calvin has an ongoing issue with a bully named Mo. My, my sons uh, like to read Calvin and Hobbes. It's one of my proudest things, I feel, as a father, that uh, I've introduced them to Calvin. So Mo comes up one day and he tells Calvin, get off the swing, Twinkie. And Calvin stands up for himself and says, forget it, Mo. Wait your turn. And then the next, the next frame, Mo wallops him. This is a common refrain in Calvin's life. And then the last frame, Calvin says it this way. In the dut, he mutters, it is hard to be religious when certain people are never incinerated by bolts of lightning. <laughs> and isn't that the cry of so many people? God, where in the world are you that you would not deal with this evil? A couple of years ago, there was an initiative by a man named Brian Stevenson to open a museum called the National Museum for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. You can get there quite easily. You should take a homeschool trip to it. It's 90 minutes away. It's a museum built around the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow. It's a, kind of almost like our own Holocaust museum in our country, and it recognizes and remembers the genocide that was committed against African Americans in this country. And in particular, there's an incredibly moving particular part of the museum in which it has a room in which it holds, uh, there's these hanging monuments, 4,400 of them, each representing the lynchings that happened in our country from 1870 to the 1940s. Two of them are represented here in Carroll County. These hanging symbols, they not only represent this history of each specific lynching, but they share the story and the background of each one. One man was lynched because he simply followed too closely behind a white woman. Another man for simply questioning the purchase price of the, of the white farmer purchasing his, his, the black farmer's crops. The reasons on and on for these 4,400 lynchings were horrible and unjust. And aren't they just the, they were just the end. The end after 300 years of oppression. And how many times do you think the slaves and the people living under Jim Crow cried out, How long? Where are you? What are you going to do about this, God? You are holy. And just so why don't you show up? How can you look at these things and these people who declare to be lovers of God treat us like this? Amongst God's household. Year after year of disappointment. Life born, life lived, life gone. And God has done nothing. What are the lessons for us here in regards to our relationship with God. I'm gonna give you two under this point. Lesson one is prayer is sometimes not the place of peace. It is the place of agony. Prayer may eventually lead to peace, to a greater peace, but it may first be the place of utter soul turmoil and wrestling with God. Prayer is not necessarily the place where you and I get to go and escape perplexity, but it is the place where we go to express our perplexity, where we don't understand God's ways. You may find that prayer is not a tranquil place, but it is the place where your disturbed soul makes its pouring out. The place of prayer is a messy place. As one pastor named Ralph Davis put it, he said this, it is littered, the prayer floor is littered with the whys and the how longs of God's intercessors. And for many of you, this is why you actually don't go to God in prayer. Because the ache is too great. Because to get quiet and to come face to face with God 
would mean you have to begin to pour out your cries and you're not sure when the tears will end. And so it's easier to stay away. It is the place of agony, but it is the place you most need to go. And that is the second lesson. That prayer is the place to voice your disappointments. Not just your general disappointments, your disappointment at God. It is the place you get to raise your voice with brazenness and bold face and unfiltered cries to the very face of God. There is nothing dispassionate about what Habakkuk says here. He is pointing the finger. There are exclamation points in this prayer. He challenges God honestly and boldly and he expresses to God his disappointment, not in general, but with the very things that God has brought into his life that he does not like. And he says, God, what are you doing? The language here is not respectful. It's not holding back. It is not temperate language. And so what are we supposed to make of this as Christians? Can we talk to God this way? I don't... I don't know if it's right, but it's what we ought to do. I I wrestle with that in my own spirit, but I know this, those who are wiser than me and those who are more holy than me have consistently spoken to God this way. The man for God's own heart, David, spoke to God this way. Derek Kigner, who is perhaps considered the greatest commentator on the Psalms, says this about our prayers after reading about David in so many years. He says, the very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding and God's graciousness to his people that he invites these very prayers and actually includes them in his very word. Did you hear that? The very presence of such prayers in the Scriptures is a witness to the fact that God understands your need to give voice to your frustration even with him. In allowing this, we see the graciousness of God, his tenderness to our humanity as frail children who don't understand what is going on. Kidner postulates this. He says, if God, in allowing these prayers, in his own word, is saying this to us, I've remained your God, not because you have put on a happy face, but even when you don't, not because my people have perfect emotional control, because they don't, not because they're doing the right thing and saying the right things, but because they're not. I remain their God because of my grace, because of my relationship to them is not based on their performance. It's because my love for them and my graciousness is unconditional committed love to them. And so I invite them to give voice to their cries. And so not only is our God gracious, but don't you think God can handle these kind of prayers? I mean, he's... He's big. He's a big boy. Take the illustration I heard of the woman who is, she was weeping. It is an old Jewish woman weeping outside of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. This feels particularly poignant in these last couple of weeks, does it not? This was actually happening during World War II or right at the end of World War II as they were discovering the horrors of the Holocaust. And she was, she was a Jewish woman, but she's outside screaming at God outside St. Patrick's Cathedral. He would allow, have allowed these things. And the priest comes out and says, ma'am, you are obviously angry at God. And she said, oh, you have no idea. And the priest responded, well, why don't you come in and tell him face to face? He can handle it. 
That's what Habakkuk does. He wrestles with God, his pain, and with his disappointment to the Lord. And by the way, this is one other thing. Don't you know that he's not surprised by your anger? That when you finally give voice to it, he didn't go, oh, I thought you were one of the sweet ones. I had no idea you felt this way. He knows your heart of hearts. He knows your anger and disappointment is in there. And he, so when you finally give voice to it, what is it? It is finally actually the acknowledgement that you're willing to have a relationship with him. You see, perhaps, perhaps coming to God in this way may be the first time that you treat God like he is real. And not just something in the corner to ignore. Well, God answers Habakkuk. His answer is in verses five through 11. And let's just say it's a rather disappointing answer. In short, God, here's how God answers all of that kind of poetic language there in verses five through 11. He describes the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and here's what he says. I'm raising up the Babylonians. Here's my answer to all the injustice in Israel. I'm raising up the Babylonians and they are the most ruthless, bloodthirsty people on the planet and they're gonna come and sweep, sweep across God's, my people and they're gonna, be, they're gonna put an end to it all. And Habakkuk goes, wait, what? That's your answer to injustice? To bring people who are even more corrupt and more unjust to come and do, this is your instrument? I just complained, why are you letting evil and injustice reign? And your answer is, how about I bring you even more evil and more injustice to deal with the lesser evil and lesser injustice in your midst? Well, that's where Habakkuk goes and he's gonna begin complaining to God and asking his questions. But before we get there, we see that, that before he answers his, with his complaint and his questions again, Habakkuk moves towards worship and confession of faith. It is a crazy thing to do in the midst of this. God says, I'm bringing the Babylonians and here's our second heading. He gives voice to his worship regarding the character of God. This is found in verse 12. Let's read it again together. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. What's he saying here? He's saying three things really quickly. First, that there's an intimate clinging going on, there's a confident declaration, and there's a recognition of God's discipline. First, the intimate clinging. He gives voice. He's wrestling with God. He's speaking... We see in verses one through four in a seemingly disrespectful way to God. But here's what we never see Habakkuk do. He doesn't leave him. He doesn't leave him. He gives no hint of bailing out his relationship with God. And he, here's how we, when we are faced with God's disappointments and we look at the things that he allows in the world, how often we respond. Either we clam up and we go quiet. Or we blow up not at God, but we tell everybody else about how mad we are, except for to God. Or third, we bail out completely. If God would have allowed this and this and this disappointment in my life, then I'm out. We clam up, we blow up, or we bail out. But Habakkuk, what does he do? Neither of those things. He does blow up, but not out. He blows up to God. And he says that there's an intimacy in this fight with God. You mean, wrestling is a rather intimate sport. I'm fine not to ever wrestle because I don't ever want to grab hold of sweaty, hairy men. 
That is not something, but that is an intimate activity. And yet that is what Habakkuk is doing with God. He is wrestling with him. And we see it in the fact, how does he point and describe to God? He said, you are eternal and everlasting, my holy one. You belong to me and I belong to you. He doesn't let loose of, of God. In the torment of his frustration, he grabs hold of God's, the garment of God's. And then, so we see the intimacy, you're my love, my holy one. But you also see in light of the character of God, he makes a confident declaration. It's kind of odd, right? He says, we shall not die. He says, you're from everlasting, from everlasting. You're my holy one. And that leads to that declaration that we shall not die. In other words, what he's saying is this, is that this is the keeping God. That yes, he's in a discipline. Yes, he's gonna judge his people. But he is the God who is from everlasting, from everlasting. He has shown that he is willing to keep his people even in the midst of our judgments. He affirms God's sovereign rule here. He's, he's saying, we are not gonna be made extinct by what you're doing. We're not going to be completely ended. And so he's clinging to God's covenant promises. Yes, your discipline is coming upon us because you told it was going to come upon us, but you will not destroy us completely. And then lastly, Habakkuk sees what God is doing. He says, God, you're using the Babylonians as your instrument of discipline upon your people. He affirms God's sovereign right to rule, to accomplish his purposes in the way that he sees fit. That God has the right to take those who are seeking to do evil like the Babylonians and use their evil deeds to accomplish God's purposes in this world. In summary, therefore, taking all together, Habakkuk is saying this. He's saying, God, you are my God. And I have seen that you're everlasting in faithfulness to your people. And even in this, even in this, you are in charge. And therefore, I have confidence that we will not completely go extinct that we will not be utterly destroyed, but you, uh, you will keep us even in the midst of judgment and discipline. That is an incredible amount of things to hold in tension. The fear and the security, afraid of the, of the discipline God is bringing, questioning it, and yet at the same time saying, I submit to it and I'm secure in it. In other words, we as God's people are not immune to God's discipline, and even sometimes that discipline may appear devastating, but we have security in him even in the midst of it. Here's a Reader's Digest illustration for you to kind of push this through to our minds and hearts. Reader's Digest, so most of you under the age of 45 have no idea what Reader's Digest is. Ben talked about uh, people uh, squatting and scrolling last week. This was the old school squat and scroll. You would sit and read Reader's Digest in the bathroom. But here's an old story from Reader's Digest. There was a man named Wayne Gray who entered a police station to pay a parking fine. And he noticed there was an old lady and she was like, essentially, she was kind of in the corner trembling. She was clearly nervous and upset, visibly upset. And, and he's, he, but she has a book with her that she's holding. And, and well, Wayne, Wayne Gray, he pays his fine for, for his parking ticket, and then he turns around, and he sees that this woman is sitting in the corner of the waiting room of the police station, and she's now reading the book, but she still seems a little bit um, shaken. And he goes over to the woman and, and asks, hey, is there something that you need the police to do for you? Is there anything I can do for you? And, and she said, no, no, no. You see, I'm just sitting here reading alone this mystery story, and I was reading alone at home, and I got so scared, I decided I needed to, if I was going to finish the book, I needed to be under police protection. <laughs> what we have there is fear simultaneously with a sense of security. And these are the things that Habakkuk in his worship holds in tension before the Lord. 
And so he doesn't clam up and he doesn't blow out or bail out, but he digs in and he clings to the character of God. And we're going to see Habakkuk tell God that he's confused. He's confused. He's confused by God and he begins in verse 13 starting to question God again. But I want before, as we're going to look at those questions in just a second, what I want you to see, though, is his confusion and his willingness to ask questions of God is rooted in what he knows about God's character. Until, and here's here's a critical point here. Until you look at the character of God, until you look at the unassailable, unimpeachable face of Almighty God, you will never be able to look at the inexplicable circumstances that same God brings into your life. I'm gonna say it again to help help you understand it. Until you understand the beauty and the power and the everlastingness and the holiness of this God, you will not be able to look face to face and acknowledge the confusing things he brings into your life. Knowing his power and his might and his sovereignty is what actually gives you the freedom to ask the questions that your soul and your heart need to ask of him. And so you must know who he is. You must come to understand his character. Prayerful confidence about God is the only way to, fear, to face the fearful confusion about God's ways. And so for those of you who may be in a time in which life is good, what I would say to you is get to know the character of God. Because in knowing who he is, it will give you the freedom and the strength to go and ask him questions when he begins to confuse you a lot. Last, last point and last heading. He gives voice to his questions regarding the ways of God. This is verse 13 through 17. He asks a question in verse 13. He asks a question in verse 17, and then in verses 14 through 16, he describes how bad things are going to be with the Babylonians. Verse 13, he's frustrated the wicked get to enact judgment against the less wicked. The wicked get to enact judgment against the righteous. Okay, so here's what he's saying. Okay, God, you're my God. You've been faithful to us in the past. You're everlasting to everlasting. And oh, by the way, I know we deserve discipline. And, and, but you're not going to destroy us in that discipline, so, but that's a good thing. And we deserve that because you're a God who cannot look upon evil, not even our evil, your, God, your people's evil. But while we're bringing up the issue of evil and your inability to look at it, I, I have a question for you. If you're a God who cannot look upon evil, then why in the world are you using those who are more evil than us to bring judgment upon us? That seems wildly unfair. That, that confuses me. It makes sense if you, you brought a, a more holy, a holy prophet to strike us dead. But you bring evil, evil, wicked men to crush us? I don't get this, God. And then he looks the suffering in what's coming face to face. He makes a metaphor about suffering. It's a little bit odd. It's about fish in a barrel. He's frustrated that the wicked get to enact in judgment against the less wicked. And then he uses this metaphor of a happy group of fishermen and a hapless group of fish. The people of God are the fish and the Babylonians are the fishermen. And he said, they're going to pluck us out and they're going to use nets and hooks and they're going to destroy us. And then they're going to throw a party about it. In other words, what he's doing is he's looking at the future and going, this is the suffering that we have in front of us. 
They're gonna use us and abuse us and mistreat us. This is looking at suffering without an ascetic. He is not candy coating what is coming. And then he surrounds the metaphor <clears throat> of how bad things are gonna be with these two questions. God, how can you look on those who are less righteous punishing those who are more righteous? And then he says at the end, he ends with a question, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He brings his questions to God. He can acknowledge how faithful God has been to his people. He can acknowledge that, God, that Israel deserves the discipline of God. He does, but he, that does not mean that when the means and the ways of God and how God is going to carry out his judgment makes any sense to Habakkuk. And he is generally and utterly disappointed that God has not come with a, with a better way to bring about his discipline. The ways of God can be so confusing with, to us. They can make no sense to us. The whys and the hows of God's discipline. And so where are we to go with these questions, with our confusions and with our bewilderment? Habakkuk brings his questions to God. Now, does he get an answer? At least in chapter one, there is no good answer. He asked a question in the verses one through four and he got an answer that he didn't like and so he asked some more questions. But I want you to see that the, the path, the questions and your questions to God are actually the pathway to the cross of Jesus Christ. Your path questions are the pathway, and so you gotta ask them. Your questions are the pathway to the cross. Let's ask Habakkuk question, Habakkuk's question. Verse 13, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Can you think of a time in the Bible when a man who was more righteous than his persecutors was put to death? There's only one place, actually. There's the kind of the, the vague sense that Israel's more righteous than the Babylonians, but there's only one time that a truly righteous man has been put to death by the unrighteous. That's what happens at the cross. God's very creatures, and not only that, his very people, Israel, assailed the Son of God. They grabbed hold of him, and they put him on a cross. And so we ask the question again, but let's consider Jesus asking that same question on the cross. God the Father, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow me up? And what's the answer from God the Father? Because I am bringing salvation and I am bringing justice out of the violence being done to you. Out of the worst, I'm bringing the best, son. Out of the most abusive act, I'm gonna one day stop all abuse. In other words, the answer to the question that Habakkuk answers here is not answered fully until the cross of Jesus Christ, in which God says, I am bringing my salvation, but I'm bringing my salvation in the form of judgment, through my judgments, because that is what the cross is. It is a judgment court. It is God bringing his discipline down. When God came into the world, through his son, Jesus Christ, he went to a cross and he took the judgment that you and I deserve. He faced the kangaroo court of those who were more evil than him, who were sinners and unrighteous, and the unrighteous declared the righteous unrighteous. And they put him on a cross for it. But it is there that Habakkuk's questions are actually answered. And therefore, you have to ask your questions of God. You ask your questions of God and you allow your questions to be answered by the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Yes, they're not specific, but they are powerful to save. That when you are disappointed and you're upset, you look at the God who said, ah, I will pour out my judgment not upon you, but upon my son. And through my judgment, I will bring about these things that are good and mighty and amazing in this world. And if he is able to do that, how much more is he able to bring about redemption and beauty and life through your disappointments? Now, yes, you may not get the specific answers as to what he is doing in the face of your disappointments. You will not have those answers until you meet him face to face on the other side of eternity. But until then, you ask your questions and let them be your via della rosa, the way of suffering on the room way to the cross and you cling to him there. For it is there that he answers. He says, I can bring redemption through suffering, through disappointment and let the cross be your anchor. The anchor shaped just like a cross. Let's pray together. Lord, I answered none of the perplexing questions that people in this room have. I don't have specifics, and I don't understand why you're doing the things that you're doing in various people's lives. I don't understand why you're doing what, I, what you have going on in my life. I'm confused by it. I am frustrated by it. I'm disappointed with the man that you've made me to be, God. I don't understand your sanctification process. It's way slower than it ought to be. And I want you to fix it. And I'd like you to do it now. Lord, I pray that you'd give us each in here the freedom and the strength to say such things to you. It would say, and even with maybe with demanding voice, fix my family, change my kids, open up the heart of my spouse, God. And when your answer in time and place is actually, I'm going to give you more difficulty. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that our questions and our cries would lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you give us the ability to cling to you in such a way that would make us go, I'm going to get up again tomorrow and I'm going to be faithful, even when I don't understand what you're doing. And I'm going to believe that you can bring redemption in the midst of this. And I don't know what that is. And I've been looking for it for two decades, but it's still not there. But I'm going to trust that the man who died 2,000 years ago on on a cross... And if you can do that, that you can restore me. Oh, Lord, would you make us so honest? Would you invite us to ask such questions? And if we ask them, Lord, would you be bold enough to at least give us yourself, even if you won't answer the specifics of our questions today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.